Hello, my name is Santiago Vigalpando. I am the chief of the treaty section at the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs. And I will be giving today what will hopefully be the first of a series of lectures on the law of treaties. And uh, my objective in this first lecture is to use the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties as an entry point to the legal regime that governs treaties in international law. I should point out at the outset that it will not, I do not intend to give you a linear description of the provisions of the Convention, which I assume you may be already at least acquainted with. Instead, what I will do is to describe the Vienna Convention in light of its legal, political, and historical uh, context, so as to provide you with tools to understand the rationale between this behind this legal regime, and to assess, now that we are about to reach the 50th anniversary of the Convention, how it has stood to the trial of time. The good reasons to choose the 1969 Vienna Convention as an entry point to the law of treaties, since it is usually the point of departure of any discussion relating to the law of treaties. The Vienna Convention towers as a majestic and imposing presence at the center of this part of international law. It is one of the most revered accomplishments of the work of the United Nations in its codification of international law, even uh, sometimes compared with the Charter itself in its importance to international lawyers. It has also been faithfully invoked by a multitude of domestic and international tribunals as the most authoritative statement of the rules applicable in the area of the law of treaties and it finally provides the template for any scholarly study in this area. In sum, the Vienna Convention is viewed as an almost sacred text in our discipline, and as such it has sometimes acquired a certain reputation of infallibility as the canon of the law of treaties. One could argue that there is a problem with this. Surrounded by our referential fear, the Vienna Convention may become a distant and one-dimensional document. By understanding the circumstances that led to its adoption, we may take it down from, it pe from its pedestal and see it as the three-dimensional human product it finally is, with its lights and shadows. As the first step, in my exploration, I would like to take each of the various elements of the title of the Convention, the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, in turn. And first of all, Vienna. Stating that this Convention was adopted in Vienna already allows us to tentatively place it as a, in a broader category of multilateral treaties, the treaties of codification. Indeed, the Austrian capital has been the preferred city setting for the negotiation and conclusion of several multilateral treaties specifically aimed at codifying international law, such as, among many others, the Vienna Conventions on Diplomatic and Consular Relations. And indeed, the Vienna Convention on Law of Treaties is the product of the work of the United Nations in this area. It finds its foundations in Article 13, Paragraph 1a of the Charter of the United Nations, which mandates the General Assembly to, and I'm quoting, initiate studies and make recommendations encouraging the progressive development of international law and its codification. 
In order to assist it in this work, the Assembly established a subsidiary body composed of experts, the International Law Commission, which has examined throughout its existence several topics of international law, often leading to the adoption of multilateral conventions. The topic of the law of treaties was in the agenda of the International Law Commission since the very beginning of its existence, in 1949. The work of the ILC kicked off with a survey of international law, which contained an overview of possible topics for codification. The survey has a curious backstory. Although it was submitted as a report of the Secretary General to the Commission, it is well known that the author is actually Hirsch Lauterpacht, who was later to become himself a member of the International Law Commission, a special rapporteur on the law of treaties, and a judge at the International Court of Justice. This is actually so well known that the publication of his collected works actually includes the survey. This initial survey took the view that the law of treaties was ripe for codification. It noted that the law of treaties had always prominently figured uh, in the efforts of codification and that it occupied a central place in international law. Still, the survey said, there's hardly a branch of the law of treaties which is free from doubt and in some case from confusion. For example, with regard to the relevance of, of constitutional limitations to treaty-making power, on the interpretation of treaties, or the regime of the doctrine of rebus six stantibus. The, the Commission was convinced by these arguments and undertook its work on the topic at its following session. The topic was led by a series of British jurists who were appointed as special rapporteurs. James Brierley from 1950 to 1952, Hirsch Lauterpach himself from 1952 to 1954, Gerald Fitzmaurice from 1955 to 1960, and finally Humphrey Waldock from 1960 until the completion of the work of the Commission in to conclude a convention on the topic. The General Assembly promptly followed this advice, convoking an international conference of plenipotentiaries from 1968, to which it invited states members of the United Nations, states members of specialized agencies, and parties to the, international court, the Statute of the International Court of Justice. The conference was to hold its first session in 1968, followed by a second and final session in 1969. This, this leads us to the second element of the title, 1969. The late 1960s were tumultuous years for the international community. Years of strong political tension, since we are in the middle of the Cold War. A war that is also experienced in that period very hot spots, for example in Prague or Vietnam. A world that witnesses a clear East-West confrontation. And Vienna was indeed, both politically and geographically, very much at the center of those tensions. Those were also the years of the demographic boom in the international community. At the beginning of that decade, there was still a relatively reduced and homogeneous number of states. But by the 1960s, the 1960s experienced decolonization, 
and with it the entrance into the international scene of a much broader and more diverse set of states who challenged the established legal order. And this puts into play another dimension of potential tensions between the North and the South. And those were also years of social, cultural and scientific upheaval with the hippies, the Beatles and, the rock, and rock and roll, the 1968 riots in Paris, Woodstock, the race to space and the landing on the moon. All these events challenged the world perception of the old order and brought urgent calls for change. Now, can we really expect that in the middle of this powerful background of turmoil in the political, demographic, social and cultural areas, a group of diplomats and international lawyers, orderly claimed to the Austrian capital and surrounded by the magnificence of Viennese palaces, engaged in a peaceful and aseptic codification exercise? The short answer is no. And this became evident on the very first day of the Vienna Conference. Just take the proceedings of the conference and read the official records of its first meeting. The conference starts with a civilized and ceremonial introduction by the United Nations Legal Council at the time, followed by a formal address by the Federal President of the Republic of Austria. But as soon as these formalities are concluded, as of the second page of the official records, a significant number of representatives take the floor to make, and I'm quoting, a categorical protest against the discrimination that was being practiced in the organization of the conference. Denouncing the exclusion of certain states from the proceedings, they affirmed that the General Assembly had breached the principles of sovereignty and equal rights of states, thus causing a blatant injustice and a gross affront to international law. Those are harsh words, and a debate on this fundamental criticism on the convening of the conference goes on for pages and pages before the actual codification work starts. What was happening? Who was missing from the conference? Well, it turns out that the invitation addressed by the General Assembly had the effect of excluding from the proceedings a number of countries, such as the People's Republic of China or the German Democratic Republic, which were not members of the United Nations or any of its specialized agencies or parties to the statute of the International Court of Justice. The outside political tensions had entered into the precinct of the Vienna Conference thus presenting a bad omen for the future of the codification work. Let's jump to the last days of the conference, a year later. A quick look at the official records of May 21, 1969, the day before the end of the conference, shows that these tensions had not subsided. They had just taken a different avatar. A proposed article aimed at stating that every state has a right to participate in a multilateral treaty which codifies or progressively develops norms of international law is put to a vote. It is supported by countries of the Eastern Bloc, but opposed by other states, and it is rejected. At the same time, the issue of the means of dispute settlement causes a divergence of views between Western states who support an adjudication mechanism, and Eastern countries who oppose it. With only one day to go, the conference seems at a deadlock. All the codification work, strictly speaking, is done. But once again, motives strongly influenced by the political context perturb 
the tranquility of the work of the conference. But it is also this political context that brings a solution with a compromise proposal put forward by a group of ten states. It consists of the use of the so-called Vienna formula, similar to the General Assembly's invitation to the conference, combined with a declaration calling for universal participation to the convention, and a mix of adjudication, arbitration, and conciliation to settle disputes relating to the convention. What is interesting is the identity of the ten states that had made the proposal. It turns out that they were newly independent states, who showed in this conference that they mastered the craft of international negotiations. This is the solution which will offer the way forward for the conference and will be embodied in the final convention adopted a day later with, by 79 votes to one with 19 abstentions, the only vote against the convention being curiously made by the French representative to voice his country's concern for the provision of unused Kogans, which in his view, and I'm quoting, was liable to jeopardize the stability of treaty law. I find it fascinating how this tense political context and the strong concerns voiced by states at the time of the negotiation and adoption of the Vienna Convention have largely been forgotten to us, the 21st century readers of the Vienna Convention. And still, they, they are embedded in the very structure of the Convention. The Vienna Convention recognizes the call for universality of the codification efforts and the skepticism of certain countries towards binding dispute settlement mechanisms, while upholding the reliance of others on treaty participation and the need for a peaceful settlement of disputes in the area of the law of treaties. The Vienna Convention also listens to the call of newly independent states for a dynamic law of treaties, in which conventions may be called to change or be challenged either by invalidity, termination or suspension. But it also upholds the concern of the old-timers, such as the European or American countries, who relied on a long-standing bilateral and multilateral treaty framework by reaffirming the stability of the law of treaties, for example with the strict restatement of the rule Pacta Sunt Servanda and an exhaustive list of motives of invalidity. Let me turn to the third element of the title, Convention. With, with time we have taken for granted the General Assembly's choice to proceed to the codification of the law of treaties by way of a convention. And we overlook that there is something almost circular and paradoxical about a treaty that claims to govern the law of treaties. As a matter of fact, the choice of a treaty to, for this codification exercise was far from a given at the time. The first ILC Special Rapporteur who considered the question, uh, Gerald Fitzmaurice, stood firmly against the option of a convention. In his view, the codification of the law of treaties should take the form of a declaratory code, not of a draft convention. On two accounts. First, it seemed to him inappropriate for a code on the law of treaties to take itself the form of a treaty. And second, he considered that much of the codification of the law of treaties would consist in enunciations of principles and abstract rules which would be more easily embodied in a code with declaratory and explanatory material. 
It is well known that when Humphrey Waldock agreed to take over the role of special rapporteur, he put as a condition that the project be revised to take into consideration the option of a convention. And indeed, in 1962, the ILC undertook a thorough debate on the matter and chose to redirect its codification work towards the adoption of a treaty. And this was done on two grounds. First of all, the Commission considered that a convention would be more effective in consolidating the law of treaties, particularly since many new states had recently become members of the international community. And second, the Commission was of the view that the negotiation of a multilateral convention would provide these same new states, in a conference, with an opportunity to participate in the formulation of the law of treaties, so that it would be placed in the widest and most secure foundations. In other words, the choice of a convention to codify the law of treaties was not dictated by reasons of principle. For example, that a codification needs to take the form of an instrument of hard law, but rather by circumstantial considerations linked to the geopolitical context of decolonization. The choice of convention was justified by the need to obtain stability after a period of expansion in the international community and to buy in the newly independent states who had expressed some diffidence vis-à-vis -vis the international legal order. In any event, my initial question remains. How can a treaty codify the law of treaties? How come governments accepted to be bound by a treaty that would potentially apply to all their treaty relations in the years to come? The answer lies in the content of the convention itself. If you read closely, closely you will see that there is one phrase that is often repeated in the different articles of the Convention, unless the treaty otherwise provides. A treaty is binding with respect of each party's entire territory, says Article 29, unless a different intention appears from the treaty. The amendment of a multilateral treaty is governed by Article 40, unless the treaty otherwise provides. Reservations may be formulated according to Article 19, unless they are prohibited by the treaty. And the list goes on. Most of the rules of the Vienna Convention are residual rules, which the parties to a treaty may decide to set aside. In this regard, the Vienna Convention is similar to the law of contracts in domestic law, offering a set of rules that are applicable, subject to the different intention of the parties to the agreement. In other words, the rules of the codification on the law of treaties are mostly jus dispositivum. And this explains why governments were willing to accept them. They knew that the core principle of the intention of the parties of the treaty was preserved. There are only a few exceptions to this principle in the Vienna Convention, and notably in the article that codifies the opposite of jus dispositivum, and that's jus cogens. Article 53 indicates that a treaty is void if it enters into conflict with a peremptory norm of general international law. Yet again, a rule that mirrors something that we know in the law of contracts, that the intention of the parties finds a limitation in those core rules that protect the public order. And finally, let's turn to the last part of the title. The Vienna Convention is a convention 
on the law of treaties. Here's quite an ambitious scope. By saying that it codifies the law of treaties without further clarification, the Vienna Convention is actually indicating two things. First, that it codifies the law of all treaties, and second, that it codifies all the law of treaties. Let's take a look at these two dimensions. The fact that the Vienna Convention identifies a legal regime common to all treaties is one of its most remarkable achievements. It is indeed an astonishing feat that the International Law Commission and the Vienna Conference were able to identify a number of common rules, for example on conclusion, interpretation, invalidity or termination, applicable to all treaties. All treaties, for example, regardless of their subject matter. The rules of the Vienna Convention applies to treaties in all areas of international law, be it disarmament, environmental protection, human rights, or investment. There's only a few instances in which the Vienna Convention has found it appropriate to identify rules specific to certain thematic categories of treaties. Article 60, for example, contains a special rules on termination and suspension of treaties of humanitarian character, or Article 62 excludes the invocation of a fundamental change of circumstances for treaties establishing a boundary. The Convention also governs treaties regardless of their number of parties. The rules of the Vienna Convention apply both to bilateral and multilateral treaties, to close treaties between definite parties and treaties open to general participation. Once again, most of the rules, for example on interpretation or invalidity, are common to all these categories of treaties. And there are only certain instances, for example, on amendments or reservations, in which the Convention identifies some rules specific to multilateral conventions. The Convention also governs treaties regardless of their denomination and structure. It does not matter how you call the treaty, be it treaty, convention, covenant, statute, agreement, or even memorandum of understanding or arrangement or whether the treaty is embodied in a single instrument or in two or more related instruments, the rules of the Convention always apply. And the Convention also governs treaties no matter how they were negotiated or their mode of conclusion. In this respect, the Convention is remarkable in its combination of modes of treaty-making that have been established for centuries, such as bilateral agreements that require a process of signature followed by ratification, and more recent and forward-looking methods, such as the adoption of a treaty in an international conference, or the simplified forms of expressing consent to be bound through simple uh, signature. All this has had one distinct advantage. By establishing one single regime of the law of treaties, the Convention has encouraged the unity in this area of international law both allowing for a, for a standardization of treaty-making techniques and a better understanding of such techniques. Having said that, there are some limitations. First of all, although it does not appear in the title, Article 1 clar clarifies that the Vienna Convention only covers the law of treaties between states and not treaties involving other subjects of international law, such as international organizations. The Vienna Convention also only covers treaties in a written form and not oral treaties. And as stated in Article 4, the Vienna Convention is not retroactive. 
it only applies to treaties concluded after its entry into force. But as I said, the Vienna Convention is not only the codification of the law of all treaties, it is also the codification of all the law of treaties. Open the text of the Vienna Convention and you will see that it offers a sort of biography of a treaty, from its conception to its death. Let's take a look. After a blunt and clear declaration of intent in Article 1, the Convention proposes in Article 2 a dramatis personae in the form of a list of definitions of basic concepts of the discipline. Part 2 of the Convention tells the conception and birth of the treaty. The conception takes place with the adoption of the text, its authentication, and the expressions of consent to be bound – ratification, accession, acceptance, approval, etc. These are governed by Articles 6 to 18. The birth takes place with its entry into, first, into force and is sometimes a premature birth with provisional application in Articles 24 and 25. At conception, the treaty may already have certain congenital limitations, such as reservations, in Articles 19 to 23. Parts 3 and 4 cover the life of the treaty the basic principles for its observance and application, such as the rule Pacta Sunt Servanda in Article 26, or the rules on interpretation in Articles 31 to 33, the relationship between the treaty and third parties in Articles 34 to 38, and the vicissitudes of the treaty through amendment and modification in Articles 39 to 41. Part 5 deals with the death of the treaty, either for congenital causes invalidity in Articles 46 to 53, or for natural causes or supervening reasons, termination and suspension in Articles 54 to 64. This part also identifies the legal process related to the death of the treaty, Articles 65 to 68, and its legacy with the consequences of invalidity, termination and suspension in Articles 69 to 72. In other words, as you can see, the Vienna Convention really attempts to codify all legal aspects of the life of the treaty. Once again, however, there are certain limitations. In particular, Article 73 makes it clear that the Convention does not intend to address three topics which were left for later codifications. These are the succession of states with respect to treaties, the international responsibility for a breach of a treaty, and the effects of armed conflicts of treaties. But even beyond that, it is quite evident that the general documents such as the Vienna Convention cannot cover all the minutiae and complications that may arise in the practice of the law of treaties. And this becomes even clearer when you look at the Vienna Convention in light of its subsequent practice, or the subsequent practice in treaty making. This leads us to the second part of this lecture. Almost 50 years after its adoption, what can we say about the Vienna Convention as a codification of the law of treaties? Well, the first thing to say is that there is no doubt that the Vienna Con Convention is a successful codification, even if its success may not have always come from where, from the places that we were expecting. The Vienna Conference was certainly effective in bringing in the newly independent states, thus indeed ensuring that the codification regime of the regime of the law of treaties was placed on secure foundations, as suggested by the ILC.
It can reasonably be said that the Vienna Conference contributed to bringing the international community together under international law, allowing newly independent states to have their say on the law of treaties. And newly independent states have also become parties to the Vienna Convention. For example, it was a newly independent state, Togo, that ensured that the conditions for the entry into force of the Vienna Convention take place or be reunited in 1980. Today, a review of the state's parties to the Vienna Convention shows an even regional distribution, with as many African or Asian states as European or Latin American ones. The Vienna Convention was also successful in clarifying the law of treaties. Today, the assessment that was made in 1949 by the Survey of International Law of the Secretary General, according to which there's hardly a branch of law of, of the law of treaties which is free from doubt and in some case from confusion, is certainly not true. In many respects, the Vienna Convention is the most blatant illustration of the benefits of the exercise of codification. Take, for example, the articles on the mode of conclusion of treaties in Part 2. These provisions undoubtedly codify existing customary international law, and they did codify customary law at the time. But these rules might not have been so clear before, and their systematization has encouraged uniform practice and a better understanding of the regime concerned. An excellent illustration is Article 7 on four powers, which is a provision that we use almost daily in our depository work at the treaty section. The rule stating that only heads of state, heads of government, or ministers for foreign affairs may represent the state without having to produce four powers is certainly a reflection of an established treaty-making practice. But it remains all the more useful today that many other members of cabinet, ministers of trade, of environment, or of defense, engage in international negotiations. Even the International Law Court of Justice has referred to this rule in order to export its rationale to the different problem of immunity of state officials, thus again promoting the coherence of the legal system. Another beautiful example are the Articles on Interpretation. The 1949 survey had mentioned this aspect of the law of treaties as one that remained unclear. If one compares the relevant provisions of the Vienna Convention with the case law of the Permanent Court of International Court of, Just of, the Permanent Court of International Justice in the interwar period, there's no doubt that they were already codifying at the time rules of customary international law. But the codification is still extremely useful in the choices it has made and the clarifications it has provided. For example, it favors the consideration of objective elements, such as the ordinary meaning of the terms of the treaty or its object and purpose, over a more diffuse search for the subjective intention of the parties. Or it establishes a clear precedence in the means of interpretation between those elements mentioned in Article 31 with those preparatory works and the circumstances of the conclusion of the treaty which are relegated to supplementary means of interpretation when the meaning of the treaty is ambiguous or obscure or leads to manifestly absurd or unreasonable results. But at the same time, these articles are remarkably flexible. 
For example, the fact that Article 31 is called general rule of interpretation in singular beware indicates that the various methods of interpretation that it identifies form a whole, which means that they do not necessarily follow a pre-established order, but may be rather combined as needed according to the circumstances of each specific case. No wonder that these provisions on interpretation have become the bestseller of the Vienna Convention, having been repeatedly invoked, invoked by the International Court of Justice, the WTO appellate body, investment tribunals, and many others as the necessary reference to settle issues relating to treaty interpretation. Having said all this, the success of the Vienna Convention has not necessarily come from its status as a source of hard law. Despite of it, all its merits, the Vienna Convention still took more than 10 years to come into force, and even today it only has 114 parties. Certainly this is a respectable level of participation, but far away from that, from that of conventions that have attained universal participation, such as the Vienna Convention on the Ozone Layer and its Montreal Protocol, or the Framework Convention on Climate Change, or even from other codification treaties, such as the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic and the, and the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. These have 191 and 179 parties, respectively. What is more, from a historical perspective, the Vienna Convention is part of what we may call the Golden Age of codification, and probably signals its zenith. But since then, no other United Nations Treaty of Codification has attained a comparable success. And as I mentioned before, we even perceive today a decline in the use of treaties in this area. The fact is, that the Vienna Convention has been invoked innumerable times as a reflection of customary rules of international law in the area of treaties, treaties, but it has not been so often applied as a treaty itself. Take a look at the case law of the International Court of Justice, and you will confirm that the Vienna Convention has almost never been found applicable, either because the treating dispute had been concluded before its entry into force, or because one or both of the parties to the dispute were not parties to the Convention. Still, most of the time, the court ends up quoting the Vienna Convention, not to apply it, but as an indicator of the state of customary law. An excellent example, but not the only one, is the Gabchikovo nagimaros project case in 1997. All this invites us to assess the success of the Vienna Convention as a codification from a different perspective. No matter its fate as a source of law and its level of participation, there is no doubt that the Vienna Convention has promoted certainty in the rules that govern treaties and uniformity in treaty-making practice. The Vienna Convention has had what I like to call an orthonormative effect. Straining, straightening state behaviors and convictions, a little bit like orthodontics straightens teeth following a model regime. And this has been its most decisive contribution to international law. Another interesting observation is that viewed 50 years after, many legal and political issues that had caused controversy at the time of the adoption of the convention have decidedly faded. Most of the fears and some of the hopes 
of the negotiators in Vienna have not become a reality. The absence of certain states in the Vienna Conference does not seem to have tainted the success of the codification effort. As I mentioned before, states from all regions have joined the convention, including some whose absence was deeply regretted at the time. It is true, on the other hand, that some major states are still not parties. The United States, for example, which signed the convention in 1970, has never ratified it. And France maintain, maintains its doubts about the convention and has never joined. The Compromise on Dispute Settlement, which was so painstakingly reached in the last days of the conference, did not produce any tangible fruit. The Conciliation Commission, foreseen in the annex to the convention, was not used, even if the depository continues to religiously keep record of the list of conciliators for this purpose. And the International Court of Justice never exercised its jurisdiction under Article 66 of the Convention for any dispute relating to the possible invalidity of a treaty by reason of conflict with the peremptory norm of general international law. In any event, the concerns expressed by some states who fear that certain provisions of the Convention could affect the stability of treaty relations have proven to be unjustified. The principal Pacta Sunt Servanda continues to be considered as a cornerstone of the law of treaties, and there has certainly been no rush to claim the invalidity of treaties under international law. One could even argue that the codification of the grounds of invalidity, termination and suspension has had a beneficial effect in this area. Clarity on such ground has well grounded futile claims for invalidity, which remain quite rare, and channeled disputes relating to termination and suspension. Most of all, the proclamation of the notion of jus cogens has not proven a destabilizing factor in the law of treaties. In Vienna, delegations were conscious about the, were concerned about this notion and accompanied it with a leash. Disputes relating to jus cogens were to be settled by the International Court of Justice. But as I mentioned, this leash did not work. This was partly due to the fact that several states made reservations to the jurisdiction of the court. But it was also because the court itself has, was diffident vis-à-vis -vis this notion. Only a few months after the adoption of the convention, the court created for itself an ideal opportunity to refer to use Kogans in the Barcelona Traction Judgment. But it chose instead to rely on a different but closely related concept, that of obligations erga omnes. And then the court hesitated for decades before even recognizing the existence of Jus Kogans, which it only did in 2006. Jus Kogans therefore wandered without a leash in international law, but did not cause any major mayhem in the law of treaties. It rather visited other areas of the legal system, making remarked appearances in the ILC articles on state responsibility or in the case law of international criminal tribunals. One could argue that this has benefited rather than challenged the unity and coherence of international law. It is also interesting to note that the Vienna Convention did not bring the United Nations codification on the law of treaties to an end. On the contrary, it merely mark, marked the start of a different era in the codification of the law of treaties, enticing states to continue to inquire 
into this legal regime. As soon as the negotiations of the Vienna Conference were concluded, the ILC continued its work on two areas that it had purposefully set aside in its prior draft articles. As a result, there's not one, but actually three Vienna Conventions on the Law of Treaties. The 1969 Convention, but also the 1978 Convention on the Succession of States in Respect of Treaties, and the 1986 Convention on the Law of Treaties between States and International Organizations, and between international organizations. These two latter conventions, by the way, have been far from reaching the success of their big sister. The 1978 convention took 18 years to enter into force, and even today has only 22 parties, while the 1986 convention has not yet reunited the conditions for its entry into force. But there is more. The evolution of treaty-making practice has progressively revealed certain shadows, sometimes expected, sometimes less so, in the regime of the law of treaties codified by the Vienna Convention, which have led the ILC to return to its work on the law of treaties. The most prominent case is that of reservations. The provisions of the Vienna Convention were the culmination point of a profound metamorphosis that the regime of reservations had been undergoing for almost two decades at the time in which the classical regime based on the rule of unanimous consent to reservation progressively left way to a new regime inspired by the momentous but also controversial advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice on the reservations to the Genocide Convention in 1951. In the intervening period, the General Assembly had adopted successive resolutions instructing the Secretary-General to follow the Court's rationale in his depository practice. And by aligning themselves to that practice, the provisions of the Vienna Convention were either an effort of progressive development rather than codification, or the defining moment of the crystallization of a nascent rule of customary international law in the law of treaties with regard to reservations. But of course, this also meant that the Vienna Convention was like the snapshot of a running athlete in the middle of a race. The race continued, and subsequent practice on reservations flourished, revealing several shadows in the regime of reservations, for example, on the fate of a reservation made against the object and purpose of a treaty. This explains why the ILC considered it appropriate to return to the topic of reservations in the mid-1990s, with astonishing results. The Commission ended up considering, actually reconsidering, the topic of reservations for two decades, producing a final set of 179 guidelines with commentaries covering 630 pages of a dedicated volume in the series of, it, of the Commission's annual reports. A curious destiny for a codification effort that had already been undertaken in 1969. But reservations are not alone. In the past two decades, the Commission has returned to several other topics of the Law of Treaties. The topic of the Most Favoured Nation Clause was addressed not once but twice by the Commission, first in the 1970s and again from 2008 to 2015, resulting in a final report of a dedicated study group. The topic of the effect of armed conflicts of treaties, on treaties which, as you remember, had been explicitly set aside by the Vienna Conference, was taken up in 2004, 
and concluded with a set of draft articles on the fate of which the Assembly still needs to make a decision. The Commission undertook consideration of the topic of subsequent agreement and subsequent practice in treaty interpretation in 2008 and has been producing a set of draft conclusions since then. The Commission has also become interested in the topic of provisional application, which was included in its programme of work in 2012 and is progressing with the preparation of draft guidelines. And the Commission has recently decided, in 2015, to come back to the topic of use codons, on which it is proposing a set of draft conclusions. What all these later codifications on the law of treaties have in common are two things. First, they do not challenge the rules of the Vienna Convention, and as a matter of fact, they generally reaffirm them. And second, they all have taken the form of instruments of soft law, draft articles, guidelines, conclusions or studies. In other words, all these codification efforts have the effect of reinforcing rather than weakening the normative framework of the Vienna Convention while leaving some margin of maneuver for treaty practice to continue to evolve. What may have changed is our perception of the law of treaties. The Vienna Convention may have appeared as a solid oak in the legal order, but the legal regime it embodies seems rather to take the form of Pascal's thinking read, adapting to the changing needs of the international community. Indeed, 50 years don't pass in vain and it is only natural that treaty practice continue to evolve. In general terms, the Vienna Convention continues to reflect our contemporary law of treaties and remains the prime reference to settle matters in this area. But there are some areas in which it does not cover, which it does not cover, or in which it may not reflect current practices. As my last point, let me give you a few examples of issues that may benefit from our renewed attention. One example is the area of multilateral treaty-making processes. To be fair, this is not a matter that the Vienna Convention intended to cover. Its codification of the law of treaties starts with the conclusion of the treaty and does not consider the prior phase of negotiations. Having said that, multilateral treaty-making processes have enormously evolved since the 1960s and have increasingly posed legal challenges to negotiators. As early as the mid-1970s, calls were made in the United Nations General Assembly to proceed to a comprehensive review of multilateral treaty-making processes in light of the evolving needs of the international community. This is a matter that occupied the General Assembly for almost a decade and resulted in a final document prepared by a working group of the Sixth Committee. The issue was quite topical at the time. The 1970s witnessed a complex, a complex negotiating process with the decade-long third conference on the law of treaties, on the, on the law of the sea, I'm sorry. This conference triggered a lot of discussions on, multi on multilateral treaty making, both because of its use of innovative negotiating techniques, such as package deals or decision-taking by consensus, and because of the legal and practical challenges that it posed to delegations, particularly those from de the developing world. And since then, multilateral treaty-making techniques have continued to evolve and become more and more complex, as shown, for example, by the negotiations on climate change, thus posing a wide 
range of new legal issues, all matters that the Vienna Convention does not really envisage. Another example is the amendment of multilateral treaties. At the time of the Vienna Conference, the amendment of a multilateral treaty was not unheard of, but remained a relatively exceptional occurrence. Multilateral treaties were predominantly viewed as a rigid and monolithic construction, which was seldom subject to revision. And this is somehow reflected in Article 40 of the Vienna Convention. Today, multilateral treaties are much more dynamic and are often subject to amendment procedures. Just think of a few examples. The Rome Statute, adopted in less than 20 years ago, has already been amended three times. The Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer has been amended five times since its adoption in 1987. And as a consequence, the rules on amendment have become much and more and more varied and articulated. Just compare the succinct provision on revision of the Genocide Convention in 1948, which basically says that if a revision is requested, the General Assembly would decide what to do, with the extremely long and detailed provision on amendments on any of the multilateral treaties concluded in recent times. Take, for example, the Minamata Convention on Mercury. And you will see what I mean. All this poses several complex legal issues about the entry into force and operation of amendments, who they are binding to and under what conditions, their interrelationship with the original treaty and so on, which the Vienna Convention does not always address efficiently. A related phenomenon, also linked with the increased complexity and dynamicity of treaty making, is the establishment by multilateral treaties of bodies devoted to their implementation. At the time of the Vienna Conference, this was only a nascent phenomenon, which we had witnessed, for example, in the 1965 Convention on Racial Discrimination and the 1966 Covenants on Human Rights, which, as you remember, had uh, established expert bodies to review periodic state reports on implementation and uh, communications regarding possible breaches. We also had seen the establishment of a conference of the parties in the 1968 Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. But since then, this practice has become widespread in subsequent human rights treaties, which have exper established expert bodies too, and many multilateral treaties in other areas, such as environmental protection, penal matters, disarmament, or health, which have established complex institutional structures comprising conferences or meetings of the parties, boards and funds and committees and secretariats, among many others. Take a look at an organigram of the institutions established under the Framework Convention on Climate Change, for example, and you will discover a myriad of bodies on scientific and technological advice, implementation, compliance, adaptation, finance, loss and damage, capacity building, etc. This phenomenon poses a series of difficult legal questions. What is the status of these bodies in international law? Do they have treaty-making power, for example? Could they engage the responsibility of states' parties? And what are their powers? Are they to be considered governing bodies with general competence on matters relating to the treaty? Or are they restricted to those functions that are explicitly attributed to them? 
All these are questions that arise on a recurrent basis in the life of contemporary multilateral treaties, and which the Vienna Convention does not address. And finally, there is the continued diversification of treaty forms. True, there was already a, diverse, a diversified fauna of treaties at the times of the Vienna Conference. But this phenomenon has intensified in the decades that followed. Today, for example, memoranda of understanding and other simplified agreements have proliferated, not only among states, but also with a wide array of entities active on the international plane, some with treaty-making capacity, others whose treaty-making capacity is unclear. The actors representing states at the international level have also diversified, with interinstitutional arrangements concluded by territorial subdivisions or agencies of the state. At the multilateral level, bodies operating in the framework of existing institutions, such as the authority of heads of state and governments of ECOWAS, or the European Council in the framework of the European Union, adopt instruments that seem to be midway between decisions of international organizations and proper treaties. In front of all this, the straightforward definition of a treaty contained in the Vienna Convention and the rules that are codified therein on conclusion, on interpretation, or on application are sometimes challenging to apply. What should we take from all this? Well, as I mentioned at the start of this lecture, the Vienna Convention is too often perceived in our discipline as a sort of sacred text. And the problem with this is that, as a consequence, the Vienna Convention becomes a distant and unapproachable object. When I was in school, I was compelled to read the classics of literature, and it was often a boring and pointless experience until I found a teacher who was able to show to me that all these revered masterpieces were much closer to my life than I thought they were, that Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is ultimately a romantic story among teenagers, that Don Quixote is a parody of adventure epics, that the Divina Commedia is a history lesson, or Moliere's comedies, farces of real life. Similarly, I think there's much to be gained with becoming friends with the Vienna Convention and appreciate it for what it is. The Convention is first and foremost a tool for practitioners and scholars and it truly becomes alive when it is tested to the reality and the needs of international relations. The Vienna Convention is also a product of its time, a very specific moment in the history of the international society and its legal system. And the Vienna Convention is finally the result of a number of legal and political decisions as to what the law of treaties is and is supposed to be, which you need to know to truly appreciate its contribution to our discipline. Thank you very much for your attention.